Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Back to business it is. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by Kirk Reed, my husband and business partner, uh, and Amy Martell. Uh, with Whole Family Law and Mediation. And your title or your, you have several titles, but you're a, a mediator. I mean, huh? And a, and, a, and a collaborative family law attorney. Thank you, a collaborative <laughs> family law attorney. Um, and we're talking about things related to divorce and separation and right. the approaches to that and financial issues related um, related to that. So um, I know we have a maybe a text question, but sort of before we get there, you, had, you mentioned over the break, touching on... Um, Again, regarding the approach to to getting divorced, sure, yeah. I, you were just saying that most people ask you like, "How do I approach it?" or yeah. "How do I decide which route to travel?" You know, right. what, what's your guidance in that regard? So, I think people need to think about well, how do they. So, I, when I when I meet with people and talk with them on the phone initially, I give them a, a, a visual of what this looks like. How can you? What can you envision doing in these conversations? Um, so, if people think that they feel comfortable enough sitting at a table with another person, with with, with their spouse, to have the conversation with somebody who's guiding them. And, and as a mediator, I, I often refer to myself as a Sherpa. So I'm there to help people get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. identify all the issues that they need to identify, touch on all those, resolve those in a way, and then I hold some of the baggage and, and make <laughs> those conversations a little bit easier just by being a third person mm-hmm. in the room. So I facilitate yeah. those conversations that seem overwhelming and hard um, and are hard. The mediation is not the kumbaya process. It's, it can be really 
emotionally challenging and draining and, and cognitively challenging? Um, or do they feel like they need to have an attorney with them in the room um, at all times in order to have that process? And you can do that in mediation, but in that situation, it, for some people, that may be a, a, a reason for them to choose something like a collaborative law process. Mm -hmm. They still want to keep the process out of court, but for whatever reason, they really want to have attorneys facilitating that process. And maybe they also, you know, it, it, it feel like that, that, that addition of that third person coach, because of whatever the emotional issues are or the, the personal issues are, they want to have that team working on their behalf okay. um, in order to, to resolve this. So are there essentially four routes to travel when you get divorced? So number one, the traditional, you each have an attorney, you go to court. Yeah. And I mean, you don't have to go to court with the attorneys. I mean, they, okay. they could just be settlement. There's plenty, plenty, plenty okay. of cases that do settle even without going to court at all with conventionally trained attorneys. Okay. Yeah. I would say, it, I mean, but you know, so maybe there's, there's five. Okay. So the tradi tradition, so, so litigation, okay. Litigation all the way. Yep. Um, working with attorneys to settle the case, maybe going to court once, that's maybe not. That's the collaboration. Not quite. Oh, <laughs> I know. All right, all right, all right. So, it, um, and, I, and, I, and I have on my website for anybody who needs, I have a lot yeah. of these materials on there. Okay. Uh, and so I have a spectrum of, of these court processes that, that is on the website in, in the resources section. But it, so litigation, full on litigation, settlement oriented process, and then collaborative law, which is, you know, two attorneys who are interspace negotiator trained, working with this, this neutral coach to facilitate the process and then mediation. And the, okay. And then there's, there's sort of this out of court resolution that people can do. We call a kitchen table resolution where people are working together. Maybe they have, they're consulting with attorneys on the side, but okay. the attorneys aren't working together. Maybe there's no kids, not a lot of assets. It's yeah. just pretty simple. I mean, I sometimes, exactly. Yeah. I sometimes have clients come in and say, we know what we want to do. We we just need an attorney to help us draft this okay. up. And mm -hmm. in that situation, I can either work as a mediator to help both, you know, and draft on, on mm -hmm. sort of behalf of both of them, but not providing legal advice to either one of them. Or I can work as an attorney for one of them, draft the documents in a way that is new, that is, that is cooperatively and collaboratively minded, still taking into consideration the other person, but I have the other person sign an acknowledgement that I'm working as the other person's attorney, so I'm not working for their attorney. Okay. And sometimes they may choose an attorney to refer to at some point. If someone chooses to go to the collaborative law route, yeah. are those... Uh, do, do those attorneys have a special designation or something? Yeah. Not any attorney can work in that Correct. capacity? Correct. So okay. there's, there's, there's a 35-hour training, an okay. introductory training that you have to do in order to start calling yourself a collaborative lawyer. Okay. Right. Um, and that's offered by Massachusetts Collaborative Law Council in Massachusetts. Um, people can go online to um, www.massclc.org. And you can actually find attorneys who are trained in this process. There's a listing okay. of attorneys who are trained in this model. Okay. Um, same way that there are mediators listed on the Mass Council of Family Mediators website. Okay. Um, so yeah, so there's there's that training and then of course there's recommendations that people get additional training. Right. So I wanted to sort of segue into the finan financial yeah. aspects of divorce and um, I've helped several clients go through divorce, some <laughs> amicable and some not. Um, but, you know, it, it's the things that I see that complicate the division of assets mm -hmm. are real estate, like the family home, mm -hmm. and if there's significant equity in the family home, and then how you divide the assets. So so you were mentioning in the state of Mass, it's not just 50-50 everything. Right. Um, and, I, and, and the family home, the marital home, complicates the division of assets, because right. if one wants to retain in the home, there's either a buyout scenario, or assets are divided differently as a result. Mm -hmm. um, 
And well, I guess that's the biggest complication that I see. Future source of income like a pension, which are relatively rare, but still teachers and and things and some companies still um, have active pensions. However, that could just be a 50-50 split in the future. So, I mean, exactly, so yeah. from, from your point of view, what, what are the things that complicate division of assets? Sure. Um, you know, if there's what, if there's no equity in a home and one financial asset, then I would assume it's just 50-50. But what are yeah. the other sources of complication? And So, I mean, I would say that that what you just said is is one of the biggest complications. Let's say that a family has kind of lived in a, in a kind of conventional way where one person has been working out of the home and the other person has been staying home with the kids and they've got equity in the family home and maybe they've got a retirement portfolio and some savings um, and then but the, but there's significant equity in the house so significant that a buyout would be extremely difficult yep. for the person who's staying in the house no matter how much support they're receiving right um, yep. to do and in that situation you know sometimes I'll see clients try to negotiate a situation where one person keeps more of the retirement assets right. and the other person keeps the equity in the house which leaves the person in the house cash poor right. you know, house rich and and, and, right. and the the long-term uh, increase in equity is going to be very, very different in a house than it is going to be in a retirement account. Yeah, the long, you know, the long-term projections. So you see people who have stayed in the house receiving support, and their portfolio has just stagnated or mm. or, or just completely dipped mm-hmm. by the end of their transition. Whereas the person who's still the income earner and has a retirement account, their their assets have increased significantly. Right. So that I would say limits on how, you know that's one of the challenges is just negotiating, figuring that out, figuring out the process for a buyout. I mean, even if there isn't significant equity and there's going to be a buyout, that can be really challenging just from a logistical standpoint of having the person who's staying in the house uh, doing a refinance. They may not qualify for a refinance for a significant period of time. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. stereotypically, yeah. it's, you know, probably the wife who yeah. has been home with the kids and maybe doesn't have the earnings ability currently right. that her husband has. Right. I mean, very stereotypical. And I know that's not always the case, but I think it's pretty common. It's it's <laughs> really, I mean, it yeah. is, it's really, it's still really and how, do, and how do I afford to buy out my spouse? And right. I, I can't refinance because I can't qualify for a refinance on my own right. because I have part-time income of 25000 a year, you know? So it's, right. yeah, yeah. That, that stuff is really really complicated. I mean, can you talk, you talk about a future buyout? Can you, you know, post-date things and, and um, and that situation? Absolutely. And within, within that situation, again, that's where if you're getting to the table and you're talking and you're working with somebody who, for instance, is helping you look at this from a long-term perspective, um, that's going to be helpful because people aren't often in this situation looking at that long-term, but yeah, you can plan for a a future buyout. Obviously there's a lot of contouring you would want to do. I had cases when I was litigating where, uh, or I had one case um, when I was litigating, but I had, I had number of these, but there was one I'm thinking of where they had planned this future buyout, but by the time they got to the buyout time, which was about 12 years past the divorce, the wife had already refinanced the house twice mm. and taken a significant amount of cash out. So then uh, all the cash yeah. that the guy was the guy was due at that time was now gone. So they had to figure out how they were going to logistically. It was just, this wasn't a case that I handled at the divorce. I just handled it at the, at the post-divorce modification oh. session. And, and so that was really tricky. Again, yeah. logistically tricky. Is, so, that a, is that a poorly drafted divorce agreement? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because yeah. it. Yeah. And I and I've also had um not too long ago a woman came, a divorcee mm-hmm. had, this is post divorce had come in to meet with me. She wasn't a client, but we just had a conversation and she was saying that her um, ex used to be a very high income earner, very mm-hmm. high, very high standard of living in their previous life. Um, and her alimony, w- the divorce agreement, the alimony was drafted as a percentage of his income. Mm-hmm. And then he quit his his job and now he doesn't have income. And so she has no alimony as a result. And that sounded to me like, well, that sounds like a pretty poorly drafted divorce agreement, <laughs> right? Because he could afford to temporarily leave his job. Maybe he had, you know, he saved, had, right. saved some assets. Um 
And now he's just not working, and consequently, consequently, she had no alimony. Well, so that doesn't sound that doesn't sound right to me. But I'm not right. a, I'm not an attorney. Well, and, is and, that, and not knowing the specifics that, about that situation, yeah. but in that situation, there there um, there is a standard in Massachusetts that that does say that you know a change in circumstance can't be one that you're doing voluntarily. So there was an old case yeah. that you know where a guy was you know million dollar law firm owner yeah. or, or partner and wanted to go into the Peace Corps, and the judge said that's really nice that you want to go into the Peace Corps, that's wonderful, but no, your alimony doesn't change because of that. Mm. Okay. So in that situation, the, the wife could have she gone could in, come maybe bring him back to court, or she could have either, yeah. or they could have yeah. come in. He says, listen, I've been burning my out because then you have to think about the husband. I've been working my butt yeah. off all these years. I'm yeah. exhausted. Yeah. I need to change careers. I need to change course of action because otherwise I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Fair enough. So yeah. in that situation, yeah. they can come back to mediation, for instance, or they can work with their collaborative attorneys and say, okay, look, these are the resources that I still need, the wife still needs, in order to be able to stay in the house or to yeah. do whatever these things are just because you, I respect the fact that your job has changed. I, you know, sometimes that does happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so people do get laid off, you know, against Of course. Yeah, that, that, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. I mean, I guess this goes goes to the however the the it's drafted but i mean is there like a statute of limitations like right, you know yeah. if they, you know if they get divorced and x number of years go by where they can kind of change what they're doing. So, or? so that's an interesting question. So within, within a, a divorce agreement, so you're drafting a contract, that separation agreement or divorce agreement, they're used interchangeably. That is a contract. And certain parts of the contract are changeable. And, and in legal terms in the Massachusetts, we call that merged. Okay. So, so provisions in the agreement can either be merged with the judgment of divorce or they can be considered um, separate. So they, 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 they survive the judgment of divorce. And everything related to your property, when you decide, okay, this is how the retirement accounts are going to be split, that you know, this is how the count, the house is going to be split. That's considered a survived provision. That they, the court doesn't want you to keep coming back for a bite of the apple okay. when you've when you've made that decision. Okay. Um, but things like alimony, things like child support, and everything related to your children, um, things like health insurance, those things. Everything related to your children always merges because okay. the court knows that children change, circumstances change, parenting agreements change, incomes change. Mm-hmm. That can that's always merged, so that can always be changed. Whether people want to come to the table and do it voluntarily, or they have to go in front of a judge and have a judge then mm-hmm. weigh in again, and there is no statute of limitations on that. Okay. Um, and alimony is one of those those provisions that can be survived if people want it to be. So sometimes people say we waive alimony now, we waive alimony permanently, and we want that to survive. We're never going back for a bite of that apple again. And for mm-hmm. in other situations, they come up with an agreement and they say this will survive. Maybe they say alimony is going to be for five years and then it terminates and, and we're permanently waiving anything else. Mm-hmm. In other situations, it's always merged. So if there's a significant change in circumstance, then people can come back and, and have okay. that revised mm-hmm. at a That's later a point. We, d- we did have a text <laughs> question oh, okay. yeah. uh, since we're talking about it. Uh, and the question was, how is child support calculated? It's a great question. So child support in Massachusetts, there's actually child support guidelines that have been set by a committee that's comprised of attorneys and judges and other professionals. They have determined what is, based upon a total household income, what is the general amount of that total household income that would be dedicated to supporting the children? And that's including taking care of, you know, providing a roof over the children's heads, providing food, 
utilities, cell phones, blah, 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 things like that. So there's there's a formula that the court uses, and there's calculators that are online, child support guidelines calculators that mm-hmm. take both person's incomes. There are deductions for uh, child care that you might be paying mm-hmm. and health insurance that you're paying. And then from that calculator, based on your two incomes, the court the, the calculator calculates what's the total amount of, of income that would be dedicated to the kids, and based upon each party's income, how much needs to get paid from one party to the other to equalize the resources that they have so that they can each jointly provide that amount of care for the kids. Does it and, does it also factor in who has primary custody yeah. obviously because then they're right. paying the, they're paying for more Correct. For the, yeah. Okay. Correct. So right. so the the guidelines calculate differently if it's a if it's sort of a conventional kids primarily live with one parent or if the kids are really right. going back and forth between both parents houses and both parents are supporting the kids equally. The the percentage of the total income dedicated to kids is probably like a lot more than people want to admit it is right kids are kids are expensive right or is it, or is kids it not are, right and yeah. it doesn't and it doesn't take into consideration things like extracurricular activities and and oh, okay. so medical expenses okay. those things are often calculated separately and decided in a separate provision in an agreement health yeah. you know uninsured medical expenses are always considered something separate okay um, and are generally divided if some person is receiving child support under the Massachusetts guidelines that they receive they pay for the first 250 of those expenses each year and then the rest is is divided equally but again and parents in a mediation context or in a collaborative law context and even in a traditional context, they they can decide also about some of those different moving parts. Okay. Um, And the guidelines are in a, in a court situation, and then when you're going to court for a review of your final agreement, the judge wants to see that your child support agreement looks somewhat like the child support guidelines. There are parents who vary from that, um, and so when I help parents build their agreements, sometimes parents are creative about how they're supporting children. Sometimes if one parent needs additional support for a period of time, but they don't want an alimony provision in their agreement, um, they may use an additional amount of child support or different amounts of child support or a different way of apportioning the expenses that go along with raising children based on the incomes that they'll have after support. So people can be creative uh, in the mediation context in ways that a judge judge doesn't have that kind of flexibility. The judge okay. has to follow sort of bright lines of, of and, what the law says. And planning for college expenses is totally separate from child support, right? That's a totally generally. different animal. And yeah. is it is it generally speaking a third for one parent, a third, the other parent, and a third falls on the kids. So, so that, that that's what of, I've heard in yeah, the past. Yeah. A, that, that has sort of become a, a fallback provision in, in the courts in yeah. terms of what the courts, you know, the courts are, are hamstrung a little bit because, you know, there's parents can't be told that they have to pay for a child's education. Yeah, right? and well, what so, if one parent just, just can't so, afford that for four kids or whatever? Right, I mean, right, right. Yeah. So, so the judge is, so it's generally, if, if there are the resources to do so, a judge, the judges generally feel that they have no ability to order more than one third of the cost of a UMass education. Okay. So that's sort of the upper limit of what judges will order. Now, I have plenty of parents okay. who agree. Wait, say that again. Sorry, I missed that. Can you say right. that again? So it's one third. So each parent, one third of the cost of a UMass education, of that's, a public that's education. That's kind of like a standard? That's or, kind of, it's, or? it's not a, a stand, an official standard, but that tends to be where the judges have landed okay. as far as the maximum amount that they can order based, uh, you know, in, in a situation where they are making that judgment at it's trial. It's not like you have to pay a third of an NYU right. tuition. Right. Right. So, but, but, right. For, but for, for parents who have those resource and for parents who have agreed in their divorce agreement, for instance, or have been paying a certain amount, if a judge is making that decision, a judge can take those things into consideration. Um, But, you know, a judge is not going to order a parent who doesn't have the resources to pay for college 
to, to, to pay for to yeah, for college. No, no. So, okay. but, but parents in a mediation context are always talking about that and thinking about, are we creating a shared 529? Are we each going to have separate ones? How, you know, yeah. this, what we've saved thus far, if our parents contribute, how does that come into play in terms of what we're each expected to, to right. contribute? Right. And sometimes it's just too far off. They can't even... They can't even think about that. Right. Anything else on child support? I just had one yep. other. We were talking earlier about the, the things that complicate division of assets. Yeah, right. and business, Small business or business ownership. Yeah. Like if one spouse owns a business and the other sure. spouse really wasn't involved or one spouse is a partner in a law firm, for example, and mm-hmm. the other spouse really you know, is involved. How do you work through that? That, Because, you know, in a small business, for example, yeah. I mean, future earnings might be really difficult yeah. to anticipate yeah um, and could either be overestimated or underestimated depending on the future so how do you yeah. how do you work that in so how there's there's that's a, that's a that's a compound question because then the other thing yeah. that you're talking about is future earnings in terms of predicting things for support for instance yeah. when you're working in a small business that can be so varied yeah and and one of the beautiful things about again mediation or, or working out of court is that you can be creative and you can look at the realities of for instance seasonal income or or um, income that is commission-based where somebody you know has a certain amount of of income as a salary, but then they receive commissions and they might get huge chunks. I have, I have uh, folks that I work with who might have, you know, $100,000 in base income, but then they receive a $200,000 yeah. bonus, you know, as, as part of their commissions earning yeah. twice a year. And so they've been living off a credit card in the meantime because they're living at that particular mm-hmm. means. Right. So they have to negotiate that. Right. Um, so that can be varied. So I, I have an interesting case that that is starting right now where a couple actually wants to continue to be co-business owners. Mm. They, they have a business together. They are going to be getting divorced. They are they're very amicable. They they really respect each other as friends, and so they're actually working together with collaboratively trained business attorneys mm. to negotiate a new operating agreement for their business. And so the the divorce process is going to be kind of secondary to renegotiating this operating agreement, working mm. with attorneys who are focused on shared joint interest and also thinking down the the future path of what happens when you know they they want to dissolve the business at some point in time. So you yeah. can build those agreements. But with I would say with in terms of a small business in looking at value that can often be a challenge for instance how you know if one person is a sole proprietor and the value is really themselves yeah. the business might actually not have a specific value yeah but there might be assets that are you know part of the business that can be considered as, as part of the value um there it's, it's my head is literally spinning thinking, <laughs> thinking about this well there's so, there's yeah. so many different things to think about in that in that regard but I, and, obviously that's a you know you're you're evaluating that specific and, to that person there's probably no general guidance re- regarding that no but than, but i think i think what people need to know is that anything that that pops up can be navigated yeah. so for instance people always ask well if, if i'm not on this particular asset if my name isn't on the house is that going to impact me is that going to be a problem yeah um, and and the answer is, is is if you're working in a way that is cooperative no it's you you can you can navigate you can get a specialist in in any different situation also to help you make those kind of decisions so in a small business there are there are business evaluators who don't necessarily do a full business evaluation that that is you know many many thousands of dollars but may be able to look at that particular business yeah. and create some guidance about what might happen and what might be the most reasonable way uh, you know an opinion of value for instance one of the questions i get once in a while from married couples who aren't necessarily thinking about divorce but mm-hmm. just married couples are you know should we should we be concerned that you know, all the assets are in one spouse's name and, you know, because they were the working spouse or whatever, right. and there's really no assets in this other spouse's name. 
Um, and I'll ask you to give your attorney answer. My answer is, I don't think so because because I'm because if you were to get divorced, it would generally speaking be equitable and it doesn't really matter whose name is on the asset. That's, but that's yeah. Okay, that, that's good. correct. All right, good. <laughs> so I was, yeah. I was a little nervous but, to go but, first but, with that but answer, but, but yeah. Of, but of course yeah. Alyssa would always tell the clients, I'm not an attorney. I know that's right. But yeah. that's right. That's but but, I, but unfortunately I've worked with many clients that have gone through divorce and, and yeah. you know, you, you it's you have you work through it amicably or you have attorney representation to make sure it's not necessarily 50-50 exactly, but that it's fair and that, that it's, it's equitable exactly. and, and, and then a court would ensure And yes, that, yeah. any assets, regardless of whose names yeah. they're titled in, is considered part of the, we're, we're considered what's called a one-pot right. state. So any assets that you have, including assets that you brought into the marriage premaritally, can be considered. The premarital assets and inherited assets are often considered differently, um, both in the eyes of the court and when people are negotiating this, but, but they still are sort of part of the pot that yeah. can be factored right. Other in. states view that differently. Yeah. Now, yeah. now yeah. I want to jump in, though, because before you say that, yeah. there there is an underlying thing that I think does happen emotionally for people when all of the assets are in one person's name versus being in the other person's name, though. And I think that does become important for marriage, and it does become important sometimes just from from a, a standpoint of, of self-worth. So, exactly. Yeah. So, so that both people understand yeah. all of the different moving parts. So from a, from people who are trying to stay, who are, who are staying married and thinking, how do we navigate this? I would say the communication aspect of this, obviously, you can't put a retirement asset in, in mm-hmm. the other person's name. But in thinking about things like ownership of the house, there, it's it's sometimes complicated why you wouldn't put it in a in both people's names, but there might be reasons. Yeah. But having people at least both know what all of the moving parts are. I is, just wanted to ask like a, <laughs> sometimes I think about, you know, how, how common divorce is, right? Mm-hmm. And like, if you, if you think ahead 50 or 100 years, like are people even going to be getting married anymore? That's a great question. I mean, in yeah. our line of work, you know, people, even married couples, keeping their assets separate mm-hmm. is just becoming more and more common. And I th- I don't see a problem with that. I mean, I, I, I just think it's a personal preference, but right. I, sometimes I just wonder, like, do you think, could our society evolve to the fact that to, to, to be in a place where marriage isn't even a thing anymore. Right. I mean, right. I, there's a lot of moving parts in terms of, you know, half of my spouse's social security if I don't have earned income and, and you know, survivor benefits on pensions and things like that in the, in the, in the financial world to be worked out. But mm-hmm. I, have you ever thought about that? Like, I haven't, I haven't I, thought about that, but you're right. When you're, when you're keeping, in some ways you think the purpose of marriage has always been a business transaction at its yeah. heart, right? It's really about property ownership. That's always what marriage has been about. Yeah. And so if people aren't interested in joint property ownership, what is the purpose of marriage then? How does that keep you right. together? And I'd say that goes back to the emotional aspect of what does it mean to be tied to another person and have sort yeah. of these unwritten but but known rules of conduct that go along with, with yeah. when you're I married. I, I mean, I doubt I doubt marriage is going anywhere, but yeah. but but perhaps maybe prenups will be more prevalent. That, yeah. that would be my guess. If if one thing was going to change, uh, that 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 might be more popular. Because you're right. It's I feel like it's a financial transaction. Yeah. I mean. B- b- but the people that have, you know, that don't get married and have children together, I would imagine the law is written in such a way that they they have equal rights if they decide to separate. To S- the, similar to, the, to a married couple, correct. right? To, for to their the children, children. To, to the, the children. children, right? That's what I mean for the children. I get, I get that the, there's no the people that you know make a life together but don't get married. Then the and the finances are separate. So when they separate, the financial separation is yeah. totally different. If they weren't married, so it comes back to like it's a financial transaction, but an emotional one too. Like mm-hmm. I don't, don't want to write yeah. that, write that off. But sometimes I think about that because yeah. it's 
you know, you know, you hear different statistics that, you know, so many X percent, 50 percent or whatever of marriages end in divorce. And at what point is it is it not going to be relevant anymore? Maybe never. Maybe not in my lifetime. But I don't know. Sometimes I think about that. It's an interesting question to consider. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, we have on to, we that have, note, we have to do your dad's announcement again. Oh, okay. Go ahead. You want me to do it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So next next Saturday, right? Next Saturday, yep. July six. That July sounds 6. right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The fourth is a Thursday. Uh, yeah. Yes. Correct. Thank yes, you. Thank so you. Mike uh, Mike will be hosting the show, and he's looking for a couple of couples. He's looking for several people. Right. Yes. So Mar- looking, whether yeah. married or he's, not. He's yes. hoping for four people, uh, and uh, to come on the air and uh, talk live about uh, a retirement checklist. Uh, and he said no uh, no work is required on their part ahead of time. Um, and, you know, we can obviously use aliases and all those mm. good things. No video cameras will be involved. No video cameras. <laughs> uh, we can use fake names. And, um, and he is offering $150 uh, per couple uh, to the restaurant of their choice as a little bribe to get them on the air. Yeah. Um, and so if anyone is interested, they can call the office at 781-834-2010. Uh, or I guess they could text the, yeah. uh, text the text phone, 781-775-0116. So I think ideally he's looking for someone who's like a pre-retiree right. that is starting to get serious about thinking about, you know, when can I afford to stop working? Am I ready? You know, am I saving enough to hit this financial goal? Um, someone that doesn't have a formal financial plan put together yet and still has right. a lot of questions surrounding, you know, how, how do I pull this off? What happens next logistically and otherwise? How do I think about this? Um, so, you know, probably someone in their 50s or 60s that isn't yet retired, but starting to get really serious about yeah. thinking about it would probably be ideal. And if you wouldn't mind joining him on the air next Saturday morning, between the roughly between the hours of 8 and 10, though I suppose if people rotated in and out, that <laughs> might be okay too. If you didn't, uh, couldn't spend the full two hours, um, but it does go by quick and it's pretty for for someone that doesn't yet have a formal financial plan or doesn't have an advisor that they're working with to to crunch all these numbers it's pretty um, valuable and probably pretty worthwhile to spend a couple hours to, to get um, a lot of your questions answered and, and you know as he said on the announcement earlier no need to give all the exact details of your financial life you know ballparks are okay and um, like like Kirk just said you know okay to change your name as well if you're um, nervous about that. So we've done that show before and it's actually really, it's actually really good and really enlightening. And, um, I think the people that have joined us before in the air have really appreciated that yeah, experience. They, they will, they will learn something yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. We're talking with Amy Martell, who's been wonderful to, to speak with, um, who's a, a mediator and a collaborative law professional. Yes, collaborative sure. lawyer. <laughs> um, and her website is wholefamilylaw.com. She's right here in Marshfield. We're talking about things related to divorce and separation today and, and best ways to approach that and um, and and best ways for couples to work through that and think about that process. Um, we did want to get into prenups and postnups. Sure. I, I wanted to chat with you um, about that after the break. If anyone has questions for us, you can uh, call the studio, 781 837-4900. We're here for about another 28 minutes or so. Let's take a quick break, Tim. We'll come right back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. 22 years in the running, I believe. <laughs> uh, Amy had asked me that before the show. And I'm pretty sure my dad said he started this in 1997. Does that sound right to you? 1997? Sounds about right. Yeah. Or maybe it was 1992. Well, 22 to 27 years running. We're not quite sure the exact specifics. Um, 
but we are recording live this morning, 781-837-4900, if anyone has any questions here before 10 o'clock. Um, I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. I'm joined this morning by my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed, um, and we are chatting with Amy Martell of Whole Family Law and Mediation. She's right here in Marshfield as well, right up the street. We could literally... Can we see your office from here? Not out this window, but I don't actually know. I think we could probably see your office from, from the back, from right. the back part of the building. From yeah. here, yeah. <laughs> well, especially with all the trees they've cut down in this in this park, with yeah. all the development going on here. But anyway, um, we've been talking about things related to divorce and separation and and financial and otherwise. Um, I did want to get into prenups and postnups. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just generally speaking, it. Do, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that prenups are all that common. But you right. could beg to differ. No, uh, no, no. I think I think that's true. I don't. I don't think that many people. I think the people per, see them as like just the rich people do them. Yeah, and maybe a little bit threatening. Mm-hmm. Or, but I mean, I guess it, it does make sense. And that if people are getting married in their late twenties, early mid thirties, they likely don't have that many assets mm-hmm. yet, unless they come from a wealthy family or have inherited assets or or whatever. So I guess it makes sense. But are are is there anyone? Is it, are there couples that execute prenups even though they don't have assets yet because they're because they're optimistic or they're forward thinking or yes or paranoid or paranoid <laughs> or yeah I, I do i have seen an increase in you know i hate this word but but in in kind of the millennials doing prenups at the uh, beginning yeah. you know but yeah. as you said more and more people i think are keeping for better or for worse because I, I don't know that I think this is the best idea for couples uh, but keeping their money completely separate okay. and living their lives and creating a creating a plan for sort of joint contribution to what is considered the marital assets but being able to yep. keep their separate assets separate Yeah. so I am seeing a slight increase in that I don't think that many people think about money when they're getting married even though what we just said marriage is really at its fundamental level a property transaction but you totally don't right. think of that when you you're young think, and you're you in love and you're getting married exactly. and it, yeah, it's yeah, romance yeah. I want to love yeah. this person I want yeah. them to take care of me forever well, what does involved in taking care of you. Well, that is actually a financial aspect. Yes, it's the physical aspect. It's the love. I am married. I, I all those things. Yeah. But the the property aspect of it. So so what I like about prenups um, is that it forces people to talk. Mm-hmm. It prenups at least prenups done the way that I do them and the way that some of my my colleagues do them. So not the prenup that's presented to a person you know a week before they get married, which probably was not going to be held to be valid and enforceable because of the timing that it's presented. Okay. But I've had a number. So I do mediations for prenups and. I do collaborative law process for prenups and then a sort of settlement negotiation model too. And those models where people are getting together to thoughtfully consider what they have, Mm -hmm. what they expect their future to look like, I think can be a good thing too because it gets people to talk about the stuff that ultimately can unwind a marriage at the end of the day. I mean, financial issues are one of the number one reasons that people wind up getting divorced. They have different different ideas about how finances should be managed. They have different ideas about who's contributing to what. One person stays home, but they've kind of tacitly agreed to that. They haven't formally said, yes, I'm going to stay home and I'm not going to go back to work. So they're not talking about those things. Mm. Little tiny resentments build up. I I call those micro frustrations. Mm. Those micro frustrations happen and then they wind up snowballing Mm. and creating additional friction. So if you get into the habit of talking about these things, of understanding what the totality is that the two of you have, I think that sets a good foundation for a marriage. Um, So I I am seeing somewhat more. So even in a situation where people say, 
everything is going to be married, everything is going to be joint. This is what's, even if a prenup is just, we acknowledge that everything is going to be joint, but these two things are going to remain separate. Like okay. my mother is the inheritance I receive from my mother. I'm going to get to keep on my own. Okay. Is anything fair game in a prenup as long as they agree to it? it and it, both sign? So anything is fair game. A prenup does have to be considered fair and reasonable at the time that it was executed and fair and reasonable at the time that it's implemented. So the fair and reasonable sta- standard is based upon the divorce standard to a certain extent. That said, people are, uh, two consenting adults are free to contract to things Hmm. that a judge might not be able to do. So that fair and reasonable when it's implemented doesn't necessarily have to be exactly what would happen if they were to get together and a judge were to to make that decision for them at the end of the day. So in that example, is it it fair and reasonable that one party could say, well, my future inheritance from my family is is mine, even if it's multi-millions? You can, can it's totally fair and reasonable to decide that. What happens at the end of the day, so if they do wind up getting divorced and let's say one person challenges the prenup, this is the only time it comes into play about whether it's reasonable is if one person challenges it. After the execution or during the negotiation? No, no, no. So so they're free to negotiate it and they can can sign everything. But the only time the the fair and reasonable comes in is if they do get divorced and then one person challenges whether the prenup Uh, should be enforced. Oh, you that's Oh. Yeah, so you can challenge a prenup and say... What was the point? (laughs) The point point might be, hey, I was pressured. This this person put it it in front of me the night before the marriage. Or, you know, I, I really, really, really wanted to marry the person, but I wasn't in the right state of mind. I mean, the, some of those things yeah. can actually yeah. unwind. Yeah. Or I didn't know about that, That you know, he told me that or she told me that it was going to be a million dollars, but it's actually $20 million. Yeah. And we've relied on that $20 million because we've done this and this and this with it. And so now it's become really part interwoven into the fabric of our marital lives. So it's not reasonable to implement that in the way okay. that it was drafted. Okay. So, so you, there's this second look. Do you put kids? Can you put like future kids into a prenup? That's a like, great yeah. question. Uh-huh. You can, I get all the kids. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You, you cannot deal with any real any issues related to children okay. in terms of custody, support, yeah. any of those things can't be in a prenup. I do have clients who talk about if there are children, you know, we acknowledge that we want to have children and so that we will work together. We acknowledge that if one of us goes out of the workforce, that that won't necessarily be held against them. That, not that it won't necessarily, that it won't be held against them. So sometimes there's mm. references and, and there's things that aren't necessarily legally significant in a particular way they're sort of instructive that's a but they, they 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 give people direction for how they should behave but you can't you can't say you know i get all the kids <laughs> or you get all the kids <laughs> or you can, yeah. you, you can you i can want also, zero kids yeah. <laughs> you you can also um you can also spe- um, specify estate planning provisions in a prenup so you can specify that in the event that something happens to either one of you this is one one person isn't going to claim the spousal elective share for instance against the marital estate um i'm not an estate planning attorney so i don't want to get too into the weeds there okay. but um danielle who was a previous guest of yours can talk about that oh, but, yeah. but when yep. people die without a will, there are certain presumptions that Ma- Massachusetts has a will for, for them, essentially, an intestacy yeah. provision. And you can waive some of those in a in a prenup. Oh, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Are postnups common at all? I mean, and are and are they enforceable? I mean, so they it, are yeah. enforceable. Yeah. So there was there was I can't remember when ASIN came in, but but the the law that was decided, God, it has to be fifteen years ago, uh, 
uh, decided that postnups are enforceable. That second look provision, though, is sort of held to a heightened standard. So the you know the re- fair and reasonable at the time it was drafted, fair and reasonable that it's at the time that it's implemented. But there's a heightened standard because there's a different level of pressure on people if they're signing a postnuptial agreement. Mm-hmm. And for the listeners out there, what a postnup is is it's just like a prenup in that you can decide what's going to happen if you get divorced, what's going to happen with your liabilities while you are married, are you going to be able to insulate yourself from your spouse's liabilities to a certain extent what's going to happen if you were to um, if you were to to someone was to pass away you can also make decisions about how money is going to be used during the marriage mm-hmm. but because you're executing it during the marriage there's this additional level of pressure right because you are already in the marriage and yeah, so you and so, what does that so, say to the other person exactly that, yeah. sounds, that sounds so, like that sounds like a good way to cause a divorce yeah, yeah. well it, yeah. It, it, but i have so i've had situations where people want to stay married but they're concerned for instance that their spouse is, has a gambling problem and so they want to yeah. actually they actually want to work on the marriage yeah. but they want to make sure that they're protected so that they're insulated mm-hmm. to a certain extent from some of the liabilities or at least some of the property is insulated okay. from some of the liabilities so they make some decisions like that for instance or i've had a postnup where you know I, i've had postnups where people are um, buying certain pieces of property or starting businesses and so they may want to develop a, a post-nup agreement so that they are very clear about what the responsibilities and benefits are of that that new endeavor. Yeah, I was going to say it could go the other way too like if one spouse wants to start a business and if it's not successful and they incur X amount exactly. of debt as, right. as a result of it, it could, it's not necessarily like Right. It, a windfall for one spouse. It's like, I want to insulate myself from this potentially being a financial mistake. Right. 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 Okay. So the heightened, that heightened level of what we call scrutiny in the, in the law, that yeah. heightened level of, is it fair and reasonable? Um, one of the factors that a judge is going to look to is, is the level of disclosure. And that's going to be true in a, in a prenup or a postnup. Um, how much, how much information did each person have all of the reasonable information that they needed to make a decision that this was fair and reasonable? Yeah. Was that all disclosed? Were they pressured in any way? The judge is going to look a little bit more closely in a pro in a post-nup. Yeah. And again, all of this thing when I'm saying a judge is going to look at it, that only comes into play if people are litigating, if people contest the enforceability of it at the end of the day when they're getting divorced. Okay. They're going in front of a judge and saying, judge, we had this post-nup, but look, this is why it's not reasonable. I didn't know about this. I felt pressured to do this. This is what I was, you know, I didn't have an attorney who was representing me. Um, in a prenup, there's a little bit more leniency about whether or not each person was represented by an attorney during the negotiation because the the court sees that each person always has the ability to walk away and not get married. Right. But if you are married and you're signing a post-nup, you always want to have an attorney working with you in that okay. situation because there's a heightened level of, of pressure. How, how, do, how does one spouse or um, fiance, how do you approach this with the other person? And I guess mm-hmm. said differently, like, do, do you get approached by one part of a couple that says, here, I'm interested in this and, ha- and, and how do I tell my spouse or ask my, or is it mostly couples coming to you saying, hey, we've agreed already that we're going to do this? Uh, so my experience has been mostly the latter and yeah. that they, the couples have talked about it, that they've thought about that they want to have a prenup for whatever reason. One person has property. Um, I get a lot of second marriages doing prenups. That yeah. is an excellent use of a prenup where people already have children from a previous marriage yes. where they have property. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a wonderful, I had a wonderful case where I had two, a couple who were, were in their 70s and they already, you know, had their family. They were already in retirement. They wanted to get married. They wanted to make sure that their estate was yeah. preserved for their for their yeah. individual kids. Yeah. Um, and it was, the, it was very loving and, and proactive. I'm, I'm imagining that some um, 
prenups are, or, or the idea of executing a prenup maybe comes from one of the partner's families right. and that they have significant means and assets and they're saying, hey, you know, what do you think about sure. having your spouse si- sign that? I mean, is that, yeah, I've yeah. had, I've had some clients that have, that have yeah. asked their kids to do that prior to getting married and that's Absolutely. probably the norm, right? Yeah, no, no, that, ha- that yeah. happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. And in, in okay. that situation, I'd say that, that, again, it's another opportunity to create, if, if you approach it in a certain way, it can be another opportunity to build the build the communication around these issues say listen i can i we we have to sit down and talk about what all this means and what all this means for you going forward and sometimes i think it can be a really good indicator right if you're getting if you're getting a prenup done and you really don't like it and you're really angry at your spouse or your your fiance about the terms of this prenup that might be a good indication that maybe this isn't the the, walk away yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. if if, but but for many other people Mm -hmm. i mean and i have encouraged people to walk away from prenups that they their spouse has presented them with that they've brought to me and i said no you you can't sign this. Mm. Um, I've had people fire me as their attorney because they want to sign it because they want to get married to this person and yeah. I try to play out You're the parade. You try to be the voice of reason. Uh, yeah. I, 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 say, yeah. I say my yeah. job is yeah. to be the person that's that's showing you, here's the parade of horribles, here's all the re- crazy things that I've seen people do. This is not going to happen to you, but if it does, you want to make sure that your contract protects you. So I, I have yes. to be that that kind of yucky voice. But again, yeah. sometimes they can be really loving. I have you know young kids who come in and one person has started a business and, and they are very collaborative in the way that they approach it. And in that situation, it can actually be a really lovely thing. They're saying, we acknowledge that this is the terms that Massachusetts has as far as how the marital contract works. We're gonna vary from it slightly in this particular way, but we both know it in advance and we're both gonna live by those terms. Yeah. So what if someone said to you, hey, I, I Googled prenup and this document came up and my, you know, my fiance and I, we, we filled in our assets and we're going to sign it. What's your response to that? <laughs> I would say, I, I would say, I, that's, that's because I'm, because sh- I'm sure that that happens. It happens right? and it happens with divorce too. People yep. pull something off the yep. web and I'll say, okay, yep. um, that's all well and good for you. I'm not going to be able to help you with that particular yeah. agreement because yeah. these are the different things that can be problematic with an agreement. And I would explain to them again, that same standard. If you're, if you're negotiating a prenup, there's a reason that you're doing that. And here's what would happen if you didn't have a prenup. And if you have this particular prenup, this is what it would look like. And maybe you want to do something that has a little bit more enforceability if you're going to go through the process say, of actually enforceability having... Enforceability is probably the issue. Enforceability with it, with, and also yeah. predicting people have romantic ideas about what their, their life is going to look like when they're getting married. That's yeah. part of this. The, but people are willing yeah. to pay you know, $20,000 for their wedding, but they don't want to pay $5,000 or $2,000 to have a prenup done that, that's really high quality, that's thoughtful, that, that kind of thinks about all the potential pitfalls right. yeah. um, and helps people avoid them. And 20000 is probably on the low side probably. for a wedding these days. <laughs> it's crazy. Size. Yeah, I know. You know, you'll pay $20,000 yeah. for a DJ sometimes. Yeah. But it's, so this, this seems yeah. like low-hanging fruit in something, you know, if you yeah, put together your, your premarital package of, of things that you're doing, you're buying a dress, you're doing this, and you're sitting down and you're talking with, it doesn't yeah. even have to be an attorney that you're talking with. Maybe you're just talking with a family therapist to sit down and talk about money, to know that you have similar ideas and visions so that, you know, if you get into a situation where one person is a spender and the other person is a saver that you have a way to negotiate and talk about those differences and what you're how to create a, a shared goal and a shared vision so that you can preempt the opportunity for that becoming a, a reason for the marriage to unwind so common for a couple to have different yeah. spending habits and 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 ideas regarding 
or um, view of finances. Sure. I hear that all the time from oh, yeah. my clients. I'm the spender. I'm the saver. We can't. We don't agree on these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just incredible. Incredibly common. I, and the and the other piece is people have mismatched assumptions and they just assume because they think that that everybody else thinks that and that their spouse thinks that. So this makes complete sense to me. Why wouldn't it make sense to you financially that we would do this? Right. Or that, right. That you know I put fifty thousand dollars into the house and we've only been married for five years. Of course I would get it back. And another person would say, mm. Well, no, that was a gift from from your family to both of us. So yeah. even just setting down fundamental understandings together yeah. so that those mismatched assumptions don't don't create more conflict. I would imagine that as the average age of a couple getting married increases, mm-hmm. then prenups yeah. might increases as well. Yeah. Um, just given that, you know, people have more assets as they get older, they are more financially independent in their 30s than they were in their 20s. They, yeah. You know, they might be more cognizant of, of financial issues and so perhaps they'll um, they'll be more common, but yeah, I I, right, I feel yeah. like I've definitely seen a slight uptick in yeah. them recently over yeah. the past couple of years. Yeah, and is a prenup? It's not filed with the court or anything, right? It's just a, it's just a, like an internal, like an, almost Correct. like an estate planning document exactly. that you just keep internally. Yeah. Correct. It's only filed in the yeah. event that you actually utilize it. Okay. Um, all right, we've been chatting with Amy Martell, whole family law and mediation here and right in here in Marshfield. We've got a few minutes left. Um, does any, if anyone, do you have any more questions for Amy or anything we didn't cover that um, you want to talk about today? We were sort of a little bit spastic and, and <laughs> a little bit all over the place, but. Um, well, I, I don't know. I guess I'm always kind of curious. The questions that you always hear from people are people are always concerned about the whole hiding, the whole hiding yeah. of assets thing. And, yeah. I mean, so like if somebody, you know, so you go through that, that whatever is the discovery Mm -hmm. process and let's say somebody, let's say somebody successfully does hide something, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then, you know, and then it comes out, you know, after the fact, you know, can they go back and yeah. Like, how does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So, so there's, there's a motion for reconsideration. So you can go back if, so the, the agreement has to be fair and reasonable, not the product of fraud or duress. If if you can establish that there was fraud, that can Mm. absolutely be a reason to unwind the agreement and have a new division of assets uh, opened up. And so, so they could, you know, so the, the other spouse could go after that, that asset. But then, I mean, the, the person that hit it, I mean, are they under, can they be um, legally, I mean, could they be? Is that fraud? I mean, is that is that illegal? I like, mean, are they going to jail? Yeah, not, right. Not, yeah, yeah. There, there's there isn't there isn't a yeah. criminal aspect of it in, okay, in the family not. law court. No, there's okay. there's not a criminal consequence. It's okay. it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a civil court, so there's a yeah. civil con- consequence. When okay. the civil consequences, you get you that in that situation, you do potentially get another bite of the apple. It's a pretty high threshold to prove, because you know people are supposed to have done their due diligence when they sign an agreement. They say that they've had access to all this information. So there's there's a high standard, but I certainly have seen it. I haven't, I haven't litigated a case like that myself, but when I was working in the, with the judges, we did see a couple of cases come yeah. through where there had been significant fraud. I mean, the classic, you know, Cayman Islands kind of yeah. um, accounts off, uh, you know, offshore kind of things. But they were eventually discovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And there's, and there's, there's tools. So if you have those kind of concerns, realistic concerns, there's an opportunity during the divorce process. A lot of times what happens is people just want to get it done. Yeah. And so they say, I don't care about this, but then they wind up caring about it later on. Sure. It's always one of the questions I ask people when they get to the end of a case and they get what we call negotiation fatigue. They say, I just want it done. I say, you just want it done now. But 20 years from now, when you say, 
gosh darn it, I really, I really made a mistake not not doing that. Um, I don't want you to be thinking that later on. I want you to be at peace with whatever yeah. you've decided at this point in time, twenty years from now. Yeah. Even if it, even if it means rolling up your sleeves and and slodging through a little bit more of this muck, taking your in the time. meantime. Yeah. How, how many times do you normally meet with clients that are going through mediation? Is it like a couple times and they're good to go, or um, is it like fifteen? Or I would say uh, so. My personal average tends to be between two and three, and that okay. just that tends to be how I work. That's not true of many other mediators. I see many other mediators where it's like four or five tends to be okay. and it's individual depending on what the clients want me to do so I've there's other mediators that really do an in-depth financial analysis with people while they're in the room with them I tend to have people I tend to work with people yeah. and evaluate what is their capacity to do some of this as homework mm-hmm. um, again my my particular bias is how can I keep this process streamlined and efficient as possible so the people are using me for the things that they really need me for yeah. and not using me to, to duplicate efforts that they could do on their own. Yeah. So I would say two to three, I have clients who do come in and they say, we, we've spent all this time and we've worked together and we really just want to talk talk through what we've done and, and talk about maybe the two or three issues that we don't yet have an agreement right. on. Right, make sure we're not missing anything. Yeah, and, and so, and so yeah. We, I might meet with them just once before I can do all of the drafting and then we may meet one more time to review the draft together. Um, and then I have other cases that really do take, you know, six or seven times when they're meeting with me yeah. because the issues are contracted, you know, they're, they're, they're very upset or they're complicated or they they're stuck on one particular issue so it just takes a little bit of time to yeah. to wiggle it out yeah and find the right I liken it to those um to the the, the balls that go back and forth the Einstein balls <laughs> that, you know the balls that kind of go back and yes. forth like that like yeah. sometimes things have to hit and, and and react and eventually they come to a point of stillness and people are, are satisfied that was such a uh, lovely metaphor there. What is that? Kinetic uh, energy? Is that, yeah, is exactly. that what that yeah. is? Yeah. yeah, good memory, Kirk. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we just have a few more minutes. So, um, Amy, you've been wonderful. Thank oh, you so much thank for being you. here this morning. I, I, your, your, your voice is very soothing, and I, I'm just... <laughs> Uh, you're, it's very, it's just very comforting to listen to you talk about this, which mm. is a very daunting and stressful, you know, topic or situation yeah. for people financially and emotionally and otherwise. And um, I, I feel like I can understand why you're successful in your practice and that you, the way that you talk about things and explain things is very like warm and oh, comforting. You. But anyway, thank you for being here. Um, maybe just give out your contact information for anyone who might sure. want to chat with you after the fact. Sure. Yeah. So I, so you can find me at Whole Family Law, uh, www.wholefamilylaw.com. That's on the web. Um, my phone number is 781-780-2500. Again, 781-780-2500. The best way to get in contact with me generally is to email me though. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and you can email if you're if you're a potential client coming in and you want to talk about setting up an intake call. I do a 20 minute intake call with anybody okay. who wants to come in and see. I'm not sure which what way I want to go. If I want to use mediation, if I want to use collaborative law, if I need a litigator, yeah. I'm always happy to provide uh, references to other. If if it's not a case that that feels like it's a good fit for me, yeah. I'm always happy to provide um, references to other attorneys. So people can email um, me at amy a m y at wholefamilylaw.com, um, and we can set up that that intake call. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much again for being here. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed with McNamara Financial right down the street from Amy here <laughs> in Marshfield and from the studio. Um, joined this morning by my husband um, and business partner, Kirk Reed. We were able to get some child care this morning so that we could do the show together, which yes. isn't always the case. Yes. Um, so just one last announcement. We we talked about this a couple times earlier in the show, but I have another minute or two. So um, if, any, if there are any pre-retirees out there listening... Um, that haven't yet put together a formal financial plan and wouldn't mind joining Mike on the air next Saturday morning. 
um, it would be worth your while just from an informational point of view. And he will also make it worth your while in terms of a gift card um, to a local restaurant as a little bit of a bribe. Sometimes it can be hard to convince people to come here to come on the air. Um, but he wants to do a retirement checklist type show and, and help people work through things to think about when they're getting ready for retirement. We talked about things to think about getting ready for a divorce today, but this next week's show will be um, the things you need to think about and the homework that you have to do um, getting ready to retire and starting yeah, to I don't know if post. So. I don't know if post-op is on the uh, checklist. Uh, um, pr- probably pr- probably, pr- probably not. not, but, but yeah. maybe. But it could yeah, be. I suppose it could be. I guess, I guess retirees do get divorced here and there, probably not as common as people yeah. of younger ages, but... Um, but yeah, I'm sure it does happen. Oh, they so. actually get divorced quite often. Really? Oh, okay. yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there's an increasing. Yeah, we're, they call it the gray divorce. So really? Mm. Yeah, we're seeing we're seeing actually a, a significant increase in in later in life divorces. Interesting. And those present a whole other a whole other set of issues when people are in retirement or when they have a pension that's in payment status. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, what do you do with that? What do you do with well, an imbalance of assets? More complicated, generally speaking, probably more assets later in life sure. than than earlier in life and. Uh, interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So, Why, yeah. you know, I don't know if you have enough time for this one, but oh, minutes, um, yeah. speaking about the pension. Yeah. So, like, if you're, you know, if people are getting divorced and they're still working, you know, and mm-hmm. the pension hasn't kicked in yet. So, yeah. what, how do they, do they, do they, do they calculate like future payments sure, and try yeah. to figure out what that looks like? So, a pension yeah. can be divided when it goes into payment mm-hmm. status and can, and it can be divided using a court order document called a, a, either a domestic relations order if it's a yeah. public municipal pension or a qualified domestic relations order, again, depending if it's qualified under ERISA. But it's divided based on whatever formula is appropriate on it, usually calculated using the marital coverture formula, meaning oh. like what was earned during the marriage is then divided in whatever percentage. So when it goes, so let's say the marriage was 10 years, that 10 years is considered divisible. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah so it's, it's not necessarily kinda... 50-50. It depends on the length of the, the marriage. The length of the marriage and, and how much longer they're going to work. But yeah. That protects someone who's been married for two years and gets divorced and then they don't have to cut their pension Well, in, in, in yeah. that situation, right. they yeah. might not even be dividing it. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. I was always kind of curious about that. Um, all right. Well, Amy, again, Amy Martell, Whole Family Law and Mediation. Check her out on the web. She's right here in Marshfield. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to McNamara on Money. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.